You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Speak Maybe seated. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you, Joe, for leading us in worship and song. It's the third Sunday in Advent, as many of you know. You know, the last two um, Christmas seasons, we've done a sermon series going through Advent. Obviously, that is not the case this year. But rest assured, there's a lot for us to talk about in terms of Advent. I mean, just consider a few things here before we dive into this particular text, because I want to help make theological connections. I want to help connect Easter with Christmas and Christmas with Easter. Uh, Joe led us in worship and song, and he sang these words, look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. That was the first verse. That was the end of the first verse. The end of the fourth verse. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Connecting Advent with Easter. Now listen to these words from Matthew. Because we're going to talk a lot about resurrection today. So I'm going to be very intentional, intentional about helping you make these theological connections. What does it say in Matthew 1? She will bear a son. Mary will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Why is Mary going to bear a son? For he will save his people from their sins. Incarnation right there. Now listen to this. From 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died. So this, this son that was born to Mary, who was going to die for the sins of his people, is now, we read about here, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. So I'm going to tell you how I'm going to end this sermon. As you think about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Don't forget to talk about his crucifixion. Don't forget to talk about his resurrection. And as you talk about the first advent, don't forget to talk about that second advent. They're all connected and they all matter. Let's pray and let's get in to our text from Acts 23. Heavenly Father, what Aaron prayed, I now pray. We need your help. I need your help to preach your word rightly. Rightly divide your word to impact our hearts and our lives and and help us to see, if anything, help us to see more clearly when we leave that Christ is king. He came as king and he left this world as king and he will come back as king. Pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, For years... My, my kids have been playing with magnetiles. If you got kids, you might have the magnetiles at home. And you know, from my perspective, it's been amazing to see what those two kiddos have created with magnetiles. If you know, magnetiles are basically plastic with magnets in the plastic, and they all connect together because it's magnetic, and they create structures, right? Um, they've created magnificent structures that seem to me to defy physics, like, I'll walk into their room, and like, I, I don't want to take another step, because I feel like if I take another step, or if I breathe, the whole thing will come crumbling down. But it never does, unless somebody, you know, kicks it or walks over it or whatever. And I'm just like, whoa, how'd you make that? Somehow, it just never falls over. 
here's the common feature of every structure they've made. There's a foundation in which they build upon. At this point, they instinctively know that when they are about to build with the magnetiles, they go get the biggest pieces and use those biggest pieces as their foundation. That's what they're going to use to build off on. The walls are going to be built off the foundation. You know, windows, if they're going to go in, are, are going to be sturdy because of the foundation. And then the doors and everything else that goes with it. The same is with our theology. Underneath what we believe is oftentimes another set of beliefs. A single doctrine is connected to other doctrines that go wide and go deep. Same thing with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we read about today in Acts 23. We read about the resurrection as, as an idea, but we know it's connected to many different ideas of resurrection, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also your future bodily resurrection. I was just thinking about this on the way here. What do we celebrate symbolically when we baptize individuals? A person going from spiritual death and being and rising in, with spiritual life. That's a resurrection. In our journey throughout Acts, we have seen how Christian theology, including the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is constantly under attack. What we have seen over and over is that the attacks on Christian theology have ultimately been an attack upon Christ. Because of what Christians believe, we've seen people like Stephen murdered through, by stoning. We've seen Peter and John constantly persecuted. And as we leave the first fourth of Acts right around there, and we all go all the way to Acts 28, we see Paul constantly persecuted because of what he believes theologically and what he believes about the person of Christ. It seems like everyone has a problem with Paul at this point of Acts, right? Or at the very least, a problem with the message that he proclaims. You might remember from last week in Acts 22, uh, the Jews interrogated Paul. And the moment he said Jesus spoke to him to go to the Gentiles to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, they all freaked out. They went berserk. They acted like someone took away their Christmas presents on Christmas morning. Like, how can you do that? Well, the Romans stepped in, you might remember. Everything was going nuts. The Romans stepped in. They wanted to protect Paul to some degree from the Jews. The Romans were about to flog Paul because the Romans were like, uh-uh, this, this, this is what we do. We're going to do the flogging around here, not you. And then as they're about to do that, Paul's like, whoa, I'm a Roman citizen. <laughs> because of Paul's citizenship, Criminal accusations require a trial. What we see in Acts 22 leading into Acts 23 that is packed with a lot of historical detail. And I'm going to take one moment, 15 seconds-ish, to remind you of something I've said over and over again. There, these details are immensely important for several reasons. It helps us to verify the reliability of the book of Acts. So Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this book with tremendous detail. Now we can go back and say, yeah, these things actually took place. And 22 and Acts 23 are just filled with more details. 
Now, imagine you're the Roman soldier who's kind of involved in all this. Right? You're the guy who's in charge of making sure Paul stays alive. From his vantage point, he almost saw Paul become beaten by his own religious tribe. And when he went to flog Paul, he realizes he's not only a Jew, but a Roman, as I've said. And so why all the vitriol toward Paul? And how was Paul a Roman and a Jew? Like, how did that happen? I'm sure that went through his head. You know, if I'm that guy, I want to get to the bottom of what's going on. And that's exactly what he did in today's passage. It says in verse 30 of Acts 22 that the next day, after rescuing Paul from what seemed like almost certain death, he desired to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews. So the Roman soldier, the guy who's in charge, kind of convened this informal meeting between Paul and the Jewish leaders. Once again, it's the content of the meeting, verses 1 to 11, that I want to take a close look at. But before looking at the details, here's the rest of chapter 23. It's the details of this passage that put into motion a series of events that lead Paul from Jerusalem to Rome. So here's the spoiler alert for you all. The meeting of the minds that we're going to look at here in a few moments didn't resolve much for Paul. Uh, the meeting results in the Jews like hatching this conspiracy to try to kill Paul. That's verses 12 to 22. Like they're so bent on killing Paul that people decided, hey, you know what? I'm not going to eat until Paul is dead. Like that's commitment to a cause. Not, not in a good way, but man, they were committed. When the Romans find out about the conspiracy by the Jews, they push the issue up the governmental ladder. Verse 23 to 34. Felix, the governor, now he's involved. Felix is related to the great King Herod, which is actually kind of a big deal. And up the governmental ladder, Paul's case will go. But here is the crux of the matter from the Romans' perspective, which is the same issue Pontius Pilate faced before conceding to the Jews and sending Jesus to the cross. In a letter to Felix, in Acts 23, the Roman official in charge says this. It's found in verse 29. I find that he, Paul, was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against that man, the conspiracy, let's go get him, I sent him to you at once ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Here's what the Roman soldier's up to. If Paul is a Roman citizen, then he deserves that fair trial. And frankly, the Roman soldier wants to ensure he gets that fair trial according to Roman law. Paul has done nothing to break the Roman law, not that we see here in the text. And as we have seen before and today, Paul defends himself against the religious law by doing what over and over again? He's quoting the law back to the Jews. So what is the problem? Let's think about this in light of what we know about Jesus for a moment. Jesus was sentenced to be beaten 
put to death because of what Jesus said about himself. Jesus said he is the Son of God, the Messiah. Jesus said this about himself before rising from the grave and ascending into heaven, right? Here's what got Jesus to the cross. It says in Luke 22, the same person who wrote Acts. But from now on, the Son of Man, Jesus speaking, shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So the Jews said, are you the Son of God then? And Jesus said to them, you say that I am. The Jews, in collaboration with the Romans, killed Jesus because of the claim. Paul is living on the other side of history, as it were. He's living on the other side of the cross, and he is pointing back to the crucifixion and resurrection, and he's looking up, thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul also looks forward to his personal, physical resurrection. It is not a big deal if Jesus died and stayed in the grave. But if Jesus rose from death, then that is a game changer. It fundamentally changed how Paul understood his future. I would think Paul maybe was a bit baffled by the reaction of the Jews because in his mind, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historically verifiable fact. It is a miracle, yes, and a fact. Miracles and facts are not necessarily exclusive, mutually exclusive to one another. The miracle of the resurrection is the question at hand in this passage. What do we do with the resurrection? What do we do with Christ's resurrection? What do we do with a Christian's future bodily resurrection? Because the two are connected. Commentator John Pullhill says this, The resurrection was the issue that separated Paul from the rest of the Jews. The issue, he says. It was the real issue behind his trials. Like, What's Paul there for? Because of his belief in the resurrection. It was the resurrection that caused him to go through subsequent trials that we read about later in Acts. His belief in the resurrection. So as we look to understand and then apply what we read in Acts 23 verses 1 to 11, I want to evaluate this passage by looking through the eyes of kind of the main characters. If I were that person, what would I see? What would I believe? All of these main characters have different perspectives of resurrection. So who are the main characters? Well, I've already mentioned the Roman soldier, the one who called the meeting. The Jews are present. But the Jews can be divided into two groups. We've got the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Then, of course, we have Paul. So in this room, we have people with strong opinions on this issue of resurrection. It would, it would be like gathering a Democrat, a Republican, Green Party. Take your Democratic Socialist, uh, your Libertarian, and for fun, just for flavor, let's throw in a Communist. And we said to this group of people, what is your opinion on the role and nature of government? I mean, you think that's going to get a little spicy in there? People are going to have opinions. A variety of opinions. Some would be agitated. You'd think most people would be impassioned about what they believe. All of the people in Acts 23 have strong opinions on the idea of resurrection, or lack thereof, as we'll see in a moment. What we're going to see 
is that the various perspectives of the resurrection in this passage are, are what we continue actually to see today. Where a person lands and the idea of resurrection impacts a person's perspective on God and influences and can influence how a person lives and worships. From the Christian vantage point, we rightly talk a lot about what the crucifixion of Jesus Christ has accomplished, and rightfully so. That's why we celebrate the Lord's table every single Sunday. But what are those accomplishments without the resurrection? Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, he's talking generally right here, there's no resurrection of the dead, not even the possibility. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So what are we talking about? If, the, if we don't even have a category for resurrection of the dead, then the conversation about Jesus is dead, it's gone. And if Christ has not been raised, he says, then our preaching is in vain. Like Paul's like, what am I doing here? What am I preaching for? But he also says this, if Christ did not raise, rise from the dead, then your faith is in vain. First Corinthians 15 is one great apologetic connecting the resurrection of Jesus Christ with a Christian's future bodily resurrection in the afterlife. So it seems we better get this right. But we also want to try to see from the perspective of others, the Roman soldier, the Pharisee, and the Sadducee, how they understood resurrection. Their views are relevant today. Not correct, but relevant. The Roman soldier, he was entrusted, as you know, to watch Paul. His name is Claudius Lysias. We see that in the letter that he penned to Felix. He called the meeting between Paul, between Paul and the Jewish leaders, and he is present at the meeting. He also wrote Governor Felix explaining the plot to kill Paul. What Claudius Lysias does not mention in his letter is the substantive reason why some of the Jews wanted to kill Paul. You'd think that would be a detail you'd want to mention. It's not in that letter. It's clear from the letter that religious matters, such as debate about resurrection, has nothing to do with Roman law. Why? Because by and large, Romans did not believe in bodily resurrection. You didn't have that category. Uh, New Testament scholar Robert Grundy notes, we know from extra-biblical sources, so sources that are outside of the Bible, ancient sources, we know from extra-biblical sources that in the first century, the Roman Empire, in the Roman Empire, there were a lot of skepticism about any sort of afterlife, and at most, a belief in the soul's immortality apart from the body. At best, the soul might have an afterlife, but there is no chance that a dead body could come back to life. Whether it's with Jesus or some random Ro Roman walking down the street, they believe that when the heart stops beating and the mind stops working, the person is dead. Period. The body is going to decay into the ground and it's permanent. I imagine the Roman soldier watching the fight break out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was perhaps thinking like, what's going on here? Like, you kidding me? What are you fighting about? Resurrection? Well, that all sounds very strange and weird. 
But let's be honest, like the Roman soldier, many people in this world do not believe in a bodily resurrection. Materialism wins today. There is no spirituality because everything is physical, just like this pulpit or this, this notebook. Everything's physical. Everything's limited to what I can touch and feel and see and it can explain. There is no spirituality because it's physical. So the secularists, the materialists, the atheists not only separate physical from spiritual, but they completely disregard spiritual. So yeah, the, Roman, the, the old Roman belief of no body resurrection is alive and well in the minds of many. The motto is, if science can't explain it, then it must not be true. But our cultural reality is not something we should ever be discouraged about as Christians at all. But Christians who love the gospel of Jesus Christ need to be prayerful about opportunities to speak truth. Think of it this way. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ can change how a person views the world. Like Believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed my perspective of the world when I was saved. That's massive. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was powerful the day he rose from the grave and is equally powerful today because he is still alive. Furthermore, the hope of a Christian's future resurrection is also powerful because it allows us to loosen our grip on this world as we wait for the restoration of the world. So I do not discount that God could have used the conversation about the resurrection in the mind and heart of the Roman soldier Claudius Lysias as he was looking on. The second group of characters that we see in this passage are the Sadducees. If the Roman soldier was indifferent toward Paul, the Sadducees hated Paul. The Sadducees are Jewish, but they do not believe in a bodily resurrection or angels or spirits. We read that directly in the text. They are religious, but in a sense also materialistic. Everything created by God is physical, and their theological view of the world is primarily physical. I'm sure you noticed the Sadducees were infuriated with Paul when he said after being punched in the face, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a son of a Pharisee. So he's already making a distinction between he and them. But he also says, it is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I'm, tri I'm on trial. He just calls it out. This is why I'm here. Because of what I believe about the resurrection. Well, the, as you know, as you read, the Sadducees just lost their lunch. They went nuts. But if this was like a movie, I would say it this way. But in an exciting turn of events, <laughs> the Sadducees directed their ire toward the Pharisees. Why? Because the Pharisees agree with Paul on the general idea of a bodily resurrection. It says in verse 7, A dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly or the room was divided. Now we got corners. We got one corner over here, Sadducees. We got another corner over here, Pharisees. And somehow Paul's in the middle of all this. 
Now you can't help but wonder what's going through Paul's mind as the events kind of unfold. At one moment, the entire room wants him to be quiet. We have Ananias, different Ananias than we read about in Acts 22, but Ananias, the high priest, ordering Paul to get punched in the face. And then Paul says, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> like things are charged. But the next moment, the room is divided as if like a high school lunch fight just broke out. More on the fight in the moment, but what, what can we learn from the Sadducees and, Sadducees and their non-belief in a future bodily resurrection? To be fair, the divergence between the Sadducees and the Pharisees is first a matter of biblical interpretation. Uh, the Sadducees did not read in their Old Testament, in their Bible at the time, they didn't read anything about a bodily resurrection. To this day in Jewish religion, there remains division on the resurrection of a future Messiah and a physical afterlife. But I can't help wonder with some sadness how this debate has actually taken place also within Christian circles. Like we read about the debate here in Acts 23 and in my mind thinks to myself, well, I see this today within, quote, Christianity. For example, there are prominent religious scholars, teachers, and pastors throughout church history up to today who like the teachings of Jesus and the Gospels but do not believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. Like if I sat here and just started list, listing off names you would know, you would be shocked. Go down a list. We think of them as a follower of Christ, but they deny Jesus' resurrection. I must say, I agree with Paul. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then what are we doing here? What are we doing here? And here's a Christmas connection for you. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he certainly was not born of a virgin. There is no incarnation. I have yet to meet a person who believes in the incarnation, but not the resurrection. Or vice versa, take it the other way. Who believes in the resurrection, but not the incarnation. It seems to be an all or nothing proposition, which I'll talk more about at the end. But see in this passage how there is no room for the miraculous from the Sadducees' perspective. These individuals who call themselves religious don't have that category. No angels, no spirits, and definitely no bodily resurrection. We just kind of make this as plain as possible. Having faith in the gospel message of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ also means having faith in his resurrection. Also means having faith in his incarnation. That's how we see that it's all connected. If you ever find yourself in a church, if you ever hear me, for that matter, not preaching the incarnation or the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you grab your tennis shoes, you put them on, and you run away as fast as you possibly can. The beauty of the Christian faith that we read about in the Bible is the wonder of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
sadly, the Sadducees would not have a sense of this kind of wonder. So what do we do with the Pharisees? All of a sudden, we see them defending Paul. (laughs) They said to the Sadducees regarding Paul, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? They're like, they're leaving the possibility open all of a sudden. Like, could it be? There's more going on? Now, I do not think the Pharisees were affirming the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but they agree upon the fundamental interpretation of the Old Testament about bodily resurrection in the afterlife. They believe in an idea of resurrection. Like the Romans and modern-day materialists, the Sadducees believe that when you die, that is the end of the road. The Pharisees took the opposite view. Between Acts 22 and Acts 23, it seems like the Facebook status between the Pharisees and Paul went from persecuting to, eh, it's a little complicated here. So the Pharisees are a yes on a bodily resurrection in the afterlife, but a hard no on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I came across a a survey on Friday um, from the BBC. It's a British news outlet, one of the more popular ones. The article dates back to three years, and it was taken just right before Easter. In particular, the survey focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it was you know, geared toward Christian theology, and in particular, what people believe about the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what they found. It found that in England, which oddly enough, the official state church is Anglican, only 17% of people, Christian and non-Christian, believe in the resurrection as it's described in the Bible. Not terribly surprising, frankly. Um, Not surprised when you consider England as more secular than not, right? But only 17% of of people believe in the resurrection as it's described in the Bible. But here's what I find disappointing. 25% of people who call themselves Christians do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 25%. If you take the poll for what it is, right? One in four people believe in a buddy Jesus who taught, a nice, who taught nice things, but reject that the sinless Savior of the world died and rose from the grave. Now I would bet my right arm if they conducted a survey to the same people about the incarnation of Jesus, it will reveal similar results. What we have going on here is a bunch of people parading around as Christians but who do not believe in one of the most fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Here's the bottom line about the Pharisees and all the Pharisees walking around today. They might hate the Sadducees more than Paul but they missed the boat on Jesus. This continues to be the case. So, if you were to ask me, do Jews need to believe in the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to be saved from death, hell, and eternal separation from God? The answer is unequivocally yes. Anyone, and I don't care how religious a person might be, can only be saved by faith in Christ and all that Christ has done, in faith in who Christ is, the risen Son of God. 
Now looking at the resurrection through the eyes of the Roman and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, it leads us to Paul. Why did he bring up resurrection in verse 6? Here's the verse again. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. The Greek idea of hope in this verse is, could should be more translated as eager expectation. As Americans, we've really watered down the biblical meaning of hope. Uh, we've, we've put it on Christmas cards and ornaments and all that kind of stuff, but there's an eager expectation in that word. Paul does not have a hope that is fickle, but that is factual. Paul is eager about a personal and physical future resurrection after he dies because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason why he has this eager expectation for himself is because he's looking back and, see, and saw what Christ did. Again, you see how everything is tied to Jesus. Paul's hope for the future is connected to the facts of his faith. We could also say a bodily resurrection of Jesus in the first century is related to his physical return at the second advent. Therefore, we should not be surprised that Paul vigorously defends the doctrine of the resurrection. And Christians must champion the resurrection of Jesus in our day. Now, here is what I hope is an unforced connection to Christmas again. Here's how Easter connects with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I had already mentioned briefly, um, but here are a few more thoughts. The incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ are miracles. Your future bodily resurrection is what I would want to call a factual miracle. They are miracles in a sense that they cannot be explained by our our, our reasoning or scientific standards. Jay Gresham Machen, and I've used this quote before in talking about the resurrection, said this about miracles. The conception of the supernatural is closely connected with that of miracles. A miracle is the supernatural manifesting itself in the external world. By external, I think he means physical. Here's more of an understanding of miracle. It is an extraordinary or startling observable event. Surely the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are startling and observable events. Miracles are also not reasonably explained in terms of human abilities or other known forces in the world. It is perceived also as a direct act from God Again, scientifically speaking, along with some of our common sense, a virgin woman is not supposed to be able to give birth to a child. Naturally. I figure I gotta put that caveat in. Further, a person who physically dies is not supposed to be able to come back to life. A question I've mold over in my head is why did God not create explainable events for us, right? Just like 
two plus two equals four. It can, it can be explained, but why can't we explain the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the same manner? Why? There are many answers, but here's an answer with one word. And I got this after a conversation I had with, with Ryan. The word is this. Wonder. Wonder. The incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and again, I will also add your, Christian, your future bodily resurrection should put us in wonder of who God is and what he is able to do. And when we are in wonder over the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we remind ourselves that we are not God. Oh, how often we try to be our own gods. But when you reflect on the incarnation of a virgin woman giving birth to the Son of God, you reflect on the fact that that's, that baby would become a man and he went to the cross and died for our sin. But to prove that death could not hold him down, he rose from the grave. That should put us in wonder, cause us to stand in awe of who God is. We can put ourselves aside. We can stop being our own gods. These miracles were unconscionable to the Romans and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees missed the boat, right? They had the category for resurrection, but they just missed the boat on Jesus. Paul had seen the risen Lord Jesus and he was bent on preaching the incarnated, crucified, and resurrected Christ. I don't think it should be lost on us that after affirming a doctrine of the resurrection, the risen Lord appears to Paul. So here he is talking about the, one of the fundamental beliefs of Christianity. And then, verse 11, there's Jesus. Bringing comfort to a man who's been persecuted over and over and over again. Let's look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him. Now we've seen visions in Acts. We've seen trances in Acts. We've seen dreams in Acts. We have none of that here. I take this to mean Jesus was with him. How it all plays out, how it all looks, I do not know. But it says here, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Oh, the facts, the miraculous facts. Christ encourages and commissions Paul to go to Rome and to do what? what he has been doing in Jerusalem and what he's been doing before he got to Jerusalem, testifying. There's that word again. We keep seeing it again in Acts, testifying to the facts. The miraculous facts of Jesus Christ. As we connect Paul to our day, we can ask the very basic and simple question, are we testifying 
to the facts about Jesus. Now, is this not the theme of the entire book of Acts? The theme of Acts is proclaiming the facts about Jesus. You telling others about Jesus. If that is not the point of Acts, then what is the point? We know from this passage and from paying attention to people around us, there are Romans, Sadducees, and Pharisees all around us who need to hear about the resurrected Christ and the hope that is to come for all Christians as well. So, let me end where I begin, where I began. During this Christmas season, as you celebrate the birth of Christ, don't stop there. Help others to see how the incarnation leads to the crucifixion of Jesus, Matthew 1, 21. And how the crucifixion of Jesus Christ leads to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just go read 1 Corinthians 15. And how the resurrection of Jesus leads to a future bodily resurrection of all Christians on the day when Jesus physically returns. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.